Good evening. A vehicular assault on the United States Capitol leaves a Capitol police officer dead and an assailant is shot to death. A veteran Minneapolis cop says George Floyd posed no threat to other officers and the ganja granny on legal pot in New York, while the mayor says the show must go on. With these and other stories, I'm Paul DiRienzo with the WBAI News for Friday, April 2nd, 2021. America's employers unleashed a burst of hiring in March, adding 916,000 jobs in a sign that a sustained recovery from the pandemic recession is taking hold as vaccinations accelerate, stimulus checks flow through the economy, and businesses increasingly reopen. The March increase, the most since August, was nearly double February's gain. The Labor Department said Friday the unemployment rate declined to 6%. President Biden this to say this morning we've learned that our economy created 900,000 jobs in March it means the first two months of our administration has seen more new jobs created than the first two months in any administration in history but we still have a long way to go to get our economy back on track after the worst economic and job crisis in nearly a century but my message to the American people is this help is here Opportunity is coming. And at long last, there's hope so for so many families, so many families. Credit for this progress belongs not to me, but to the American people. Hardworking women and men who have struggled through this pandemic, never given up and are determined to get the country back on track, as well as their families. And as President Biden, the economic good news comes as the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention updated its guidance to say fully vaccinated people can travel within the United States without getting tested for the coronavirus or going into quarantine afterward. Still, CDC Director Dr. Rochelle Walensky urged caution and said she would advocate against general travel overall, given the rising number of infections. If you're vaccinated, It's lower risk, she said. According to the CDC, more than 100 million people in the United States, or about 30 percent of the population, have received at least one dose of the COVID-19 vaccine. A person is considered fully vaccinated two weeks after receiving the last required dose. And another violent incident at the United States Capitol has left two dead, including a Capitol police officer and the alleged assailant. Capitol Police Chief Yogananda Pittman addressed a news conference about the attack this afternoon. Approximately 102 hours this afternoon, a suspect uh, entered what we refer to as the North Barricade of the Capitol. Uh, The suspect rammed his car uh, into two of our officers and then hit the North Barricade barrier. At such time, the suspect exited the vehicle with a knife in hand. Our officers then engaged that suspect. Uh, He did not respond to verbal commands. Uh, The suspect did start lunging toward U.S. Capitol Police officers, at which which time uh, U.S. Capitol Police officers fired upon the suspect. At this time, uh, the suspect has been pronounced uh, deceased. Two U.S. Capitol Police officers were transported to two different hospitals. And it is with a very, very heavy heart that I announce one of our officers has succumbed to his injuries. And 
Washington, D.C. Metropolitan Police Chief Richard Conti took questions. He says the investigation is just getting started. At this time, it does not appear to be an ongoing threat. Uh, obviously, we're in the very early stages of our investigation. Uh, we need to obviously understand the motivation uh, behind this uh, senseless act. Uh, so the Metropolitan Police Department will certainly be doing that. Any indication that he was somebody that had been around the Capitol before, maybe spotted, anything like that? It does not appear that he is known to the Capitol Police or the Metropolitan Police Department at this time. Is this a terrorism-related incident? It does not appear to be terrorism-related, uh, but obviously uh, we'll continue to investigate uh, to see if there's some type of nexus uh, along those lines. We are very thankful for our National Guard partnership. Uh, we do have National Guard on the campus, but the security posture at this time remains the same. Alcohol involved, do you believe you found any of that in the car? We cannot confirm that, but the investigation is ongoing. The suspect did exit the vehicle with a knife in hand, and at that time he started to lunge toward, uh, run aggressively toward U.S. Capitol Police Office. The scene is still being processed by Metropolitan Police Department, so we will have additional information at a later time. The investigation is ongoing. From what we can see from video at this time, I do not see uh, the suspect uh, wrestling with a U.S. Capitol Police officer, but when he exited the vehicle, the knife was clearly in his hand, and he did start to run. Uh, toward the officers. According to witnesses, the suspect stabbed one of the officers. And in more Washington news, at the other end of the National Mall near the Lincoln Memorial, members of the Yemeni Liberation Movement are in a fifth day of a hunger strike. The group is also leading a nationwide fast for Yemen on Monday. The hunger strikers and their supporters are demanding an end to any United States support for the blockade of Yemen, including military, intelligence, diplomatic and other support, and call for President Biden to use all diplomatic tools to pressure Saudi Arabians leader they call dictator Mohammed bin Salman to end it. The group notes that despite Biden's pledge to the contrary, Al Jazeera reported in March that the U.S. military is reported to be increasing its assistance to the Saudis, claiming such help is defensive and not offensive. The group calls for an immediate end to the blockade. Ian Saleh is one of the hunger strikers. She spoke with WBAI. Yeah, as the Yemeni Liberation Movement have been working to end the war in Yemen and bring sovereignty and liberation to all of Yemen. Um, and we have been working tirelessly to end the war through congressional action, through protests, through phone calls, through <laughs> Zoom calls, you name it. Um, and our voices have gone unheard and unanswered. Um, and so we are, uh, we've decided to take radical action, radical change to uh, uh, demand an end to, to see our demands made which is for the United States to end all support to the Saudi-led blockade uh, that is causing humanitarian crisis in Yemen. So we've decided that a hunger strike is considered to be a peaceful protest, but we find it to actually be the complete opposite. It's uh, an extreme violation of one's body um, and extremely violent. So you feel you're being forced or backed into this by the inaction in the White House? Throughout history, somebody has to go through hunger strike. It is absolutely a last resort of desperation. Why are you protesting a Democrat who's supposed to be on your side? This Democrat is essentially the one that started the war. I mean, 
this has spanned over the last three administrations, the Obama and Obama Biden administration exacerbated in the Trump administration and then now continues under the Biden administration. This whole idea of a Democrat are on our side. A Democrat was the one that started this war. Why are you protesting? UNICEF Director Beasley has called an end for the United States to end its blockade on and its support to the Saudi-led blockade. We have multiple sources of media and uh, proof in Yemen where you see uh, the blockade being enforced by the U.S. military of intelligence and logistics with that support. We have no doubt that the United States is, is supporting this blockade. It's CNN's latest investigation uh, with Nima al-Baghir, who went there herself and proved that the United States is continuing to support this blockade. And U.S. envoy Timothy Lenderking, even though he denies that this blockade is happening, we have plenty of proof to show that the United States is fully complicit in this humanitarian crisis. Why would the United States be complicit? There's some talk about Iran helping the Houthis and others in Yemen, but uh, is that the rationale for this? What rationale could there be to starve millions of innocent people and see children starve to death? So so that's why we don't engage in the rhetoric of the Houthis and we're not interested in um, respecting that and that kind of rhetoric. Our uh, main purpose here is that uh, using starvation as a war tactic is illegal, which is what the United States and the Saudi UAE coalition is doing. And we find that it's ridiculous for, for Saudi um, and the U.S. to engage in peace talks in Yemen. If you're even denying that the blockade is happening and, and you're starving an entire nation, um, we're not talking about a village here. We're not talking about a few hundred people. Uh, we're talking about 22 million people. We're talking about every 75 seconds uh, a child dies of malnutrition. Um, we're talking about parents can't parents and mothers can't even afford to transport their children into critical care in the hospital. We're talking about hospitals not even being able to run because there are there is no fuel for their generators. So I want to ask the United States exactly what kind of rhetoric do you think is supporting this this humanitarian crisis? Mm -hmm. What about Saudi Arabia and all of this? The United States is making these claims that they've changed mm -hmm. the policy from the past administration. That's what we like to find out. We've, we've written letters to the Biden administration. Representatives in the United States have written letters to the, to the Biden administration asking for clarity and details on support for Saudi Arabia, despite what he says. And a response was due from the Biden administration on March 25th, and no response was given. We just see this as all a facade, just kind of all talk but no walk. How long are you going to keep on hunger strike? I want to ask the Biden administration that question itself. How long are you going to allow this hunger strike to continue until the demands are met? All right. Anything you'd like to add? We have a march and a rally at the Lincoln Memorial on Saturday at 11 a.m. in Washington, D.C., where we're going to be marching to the White House in solidarity to end the blockade in, in Yemen. Iman Saleh is one of the hunger strikers. And... Kneeling on George Floyd's neck while he was handcuffed and lying on his stomach was top-tier, deadly force and totally unnecessary, said Richard Zimmerman, the head of the Minneapolis Police Department's Homicide Division. He had this to say. What's your responsibility with regard to that person from that moment on? Um, that person is yours. Um, he's your responsibility. Uh, his safety is your responsibility. Uh, his well-being 
and uh, is your responsibility. Once you handcuff somebody, does that affect the amount of force uh, that you should consider using? Absolutely. How so? Um, once a person is cuffed, um, the, the threat level goes down all the way, you know, to uh, they're cuffed. How can they really hurt you? If your knee is on a person's neck, that can kill the person, added Zimmerman. Have you ever, in all the years you've been working for the Minneapolis Police Department, uh, been trained to kneel on the neck of someone who is handcuffed behind their back in a prone position? No, I haven't. Is that, if that were done, would that be considered force? Absolutely. What level of force might that be? That would be the top tier, the deadly force. Why? Because of uh, the fact that um, if, if your knee is on a person's neck, that can kill him. And the lieutenant, with decades of experience, laid out the goal of officers is to calm a disturbed person. If they become less combative, um, you, uh, you may just have them sit down on a curb. Or um, uh, the idea is to calm the person down. And if they are not a threat to you at that point, you try to, um, uh, you know, to um, uh, help them um, so that they're not as upset as, as uh, they may have been in the beginning. In your you know, 30 years of training with the Minneapolis Police Department and your experience, have you been trained on um, the prone position? Yes. And what has your training been specific to the prone position? Well, once, um, once you secure or handcuff a person, um, you need to get them out of the prone position as soon as possible because it restricts their breathing. When you handcuff somebody behind their back, well, as part of training, have you been handcuffed behind the back? Yes. And have you been trained on what happens to individuals when they're handcuffed behind the back? Yes. So when somebody is handcuffed behind their back, how does it affect them physically? It, it stretches the muscles back through your chest, and it makes it more difficult to uh, breathe. Minneapolis Police Officer Lieutenant Richard Zimmerman, who says he is the most senior person on the Minnesota, Minneapolis Police Force, he also testified that once George Floyd was handcuffed, he saw no reason for why the officers felt they were in danger, and that's what they would have had to have felt to be able to use that kind of force. Meanwhile, Yesterday, a paramedic described how she was prevented by police from helping Floyd. And were you able to do that, any of those steps? No, sir. Why weren't you able to do any of that? Because the officers didn't let me in to the scene. I also offered, in my memory, I offered to walk, kind of walk them through it or, or told them, if he doesn't have a pulse, you need to start compressions. And that wasn't done either. And so when it, well, is this, are these things that you wanted to do? 
it would have it's what I would have done for anybody. And when you couldn't do that, how did that make you feel? Totally distressed. A paramedic testifying yesterday, Floyd's death triggered large protests around the United States, scattered violence and widespread soul searching over racism and police brutality. Chauvin, who was fired, is charged with murder and manslaughter. The most serious charge against him carries up to 40 years in prison. And in local news this week, Governor Andrew Cuomo signed a bill legalizing marijuana for adult use in New York state. An activist who has been campaigning for legal pot for years is Arlene Williams, known to many as the Ganja Granny. She spoke with WBAI today. Oh, I was amazed. You know, I mean, in some ways, I think he was he was for it or wanted to be for it. But I think because of his latest problems, um, his current problems, he was sort of forced into signing it or thought he was doing the right thing. And he was, because I think he could have done it a lot sooner. And through what I've been through, and you know, like what I know, I it was just two counties and that were always opposed, and the politicians went along with the people. And, you know, my thing was always one-on-one. I talked to people every day, wherever I went, I... I grasped an opportunity the best I could to to uh, make my voice known and, and educate them, you know. So I learned that there were a lot of people against it, but mostly it was the two counties on Long Island. But I was glad. I'm happy that he signed it. I didn't care how it got done at this point. <laughs> You've been a longtime stalwart uh, for legalizing marijuana, legalizing cannabis, and you were known as the marijuana granny or marijuana grandma. Why is that? How did you get that name some years Ganja ago? Granny. Ganja <laughs> Granny. That's it. Ganja <laughs> Granny. I don't know if you remember Barbara Jackson. She really coined that name, and I've often said that. You know, it was her. She was the one that had coined the name, and we were friends and when she got arrested, I I was like in shock because I picked up the newspapers and here she is on the front page of all the papers. And I just couldn't believe it. And I called her. She was still in jail. I called, I think it was Ron Kuby who was representing her. And I just said, look, I want to go to court. I want to be there for her. That wouldn't have happened to me. You know, she was black, living all the way uptown. I'm, I had just moved permanently to the Upper East Side. She was the 70-plus-year-old the woman who was arrested trying to buy marijuana on the street in yes. the Bronx. I just turned 84 on March 4th. She was a couple of years older than me. She used to be a barmaid years ago, and that was how I actually met her back in the 60s she was uh my husband you know he was a gambler and he i was always trying to track him down and you know he'd go from joint to joint 
in literally. So, and that was how I actually met her. You were a breast cancer survivor. That's what began your your interaction with marijuana, or were you already a smoker? Oh, that's what got me involved in. I'm a third stage breast cancer survivor, so I was already using marijuana, but it was more like most people would probably open a bottle of champagne on New Year's Eve or something. It wasn't an everyday part of my life. So I was, it wasn't anything that uh, I wasn't exposed to or had heard of or had tried. So when I had got, uh, was diagnosed with the cancer, it, it helped me. A lot of people got angry because I would never say it cured me. It didn't cure me. It helped me. It relieved symptoms. I worked as a volunteer in AIDS hospice for a number of years, and I was bringing them marijuana. It didn't cure them. It helped their symptoms. But I thought it, in general, it kept people calm. It did a lot of things. I'm not saying it wouldn't cure anyone. We don't know enough about it. As far as I'm concerned, I don't think there's ever been enough research. But it definitely helped me get through um, breast cancer and a few other things. And uh, I, I think if, you know, if, if nothing's working for you, you might as well try it. Have you uh, had the opportunity to enjoy a legal marijuana cigarette since this bill was signed? Oh, I, it was always legal to me. <laughs> Uh, yes, I've had that opportunity. Arlene Williams, the Ganja Granny. And in more local news, Mayor Bill de Blasio was on hand for the opening of the off-Broadway sh- of an off-Broadway show marking the return to theater going at a reduced audience. The show must go on, and now it will. The mayor was at the Daryl Roth Theater to announce that starting today, April 2nd, New York events, arts and entertainment venues holding less than 10,000 people are officially allowed to reopen at 33% capacity. The production opening tonight is titled Blindness, where the mayor was joined by Daryl Roth, one of Broadway's top producers, Mayor de Blasio. The theater community means so much to the city. The theater community means so much to our identity as New Yorkers, who we are. The way we experience life, so much of it is through our cultural community. And our cultural community gives us hope. And it also happens to be a part of our economy that accounts for more than $100 billion a year in economic activity. So it has to come back for so many reasons. And I want to thank Daryl Roth for once again showing so much leadership, so much heart, so much spirit. Daryl and I have gotten to know each other over the years. I know you love this city deeply, and I know you love the theater, and I know you knew by creating this show here at your namesake theater that you would send a message about all of us coming back together. Blindness, the name of the play that's opening up tonight, is billed as a socially distanced theatrical experience. It's based on the 1990, on a 1995 novel and was produced and staged in London last August and brought to New York by Roth. The story follows a group of unassuming urbanites afflicted by a mysterious and contagious blindness that ultimately ravages the country and breaks down civilized society. Producer Daryl Roth. The beauty of this piece, as the mayor referenced, is that it's about a group of people 
going through something very challenging that is dark and unsettling and upsetting and coming through it together with resilience and hope and seeing the light. And by our being able to open our doors and letting the light in, it's the first step. I know that we are going to be followed by many, many other wonderful theater, art, music, cultural opportunities. And we're just so grateful to have this opportunity because we were lucky enough to have this flexible space. And so we welcome everyone. I know you'll feel comfortable. I promise you'll be safe and you'll have an experience to remember. Producer Daryl Roth. In related news, Dr. Anthony Fauci expressed his optimism for reopening Broadway on a recent webinar. Fauci said, I believe we likely could see a return to more fully reopened movie and Broadway theaters sometime in the fall if enough people get vaccinated. And that's some of the news for Friday, April 2nd, 2021. The news is produced with Linda Perry. Our engineer is Reggie Johnson. From New York City, I'm Paul Durienzo. Thanks for joining us. Have a great weekend.